This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Things are getting more expensive. All sorts of things. Not just homes and cars, but food at the grocery store. Inflation, the highest it has been in more than 30 years, as consumer prices jumped more than 6% in October. We'll go in-depth into what it means for all of us. A judge hands former President Trump a big defeat in his bid to keep White House records a secret from the January 6th investigators. And COVID cases are spiking in Iowa, but it's not people who are getting sick, it's deer. New survey finds students across L.A. struggling with mental health issues. They say they need help. Should people who aren't Jewish play characters on TV shows and movies who are? Issues being raised in Hollywood. And then at the end of the show, Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, out with a new book that details his experience with uh, Mr. Trump pushing him to overturn the 2020 election results in his state and uh, that famous recorded phone call. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll talk to him about that. Let's start with inflation. And consumer prices. Ron and Son is a senior analyst and commentator on CNBC, host of the Market Scoreboard Report. Ron, thanks for coming back with us. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, guys. So, uh, wow. I mean, uh, highest prices more than 30 years. I mean, uh, people are, I'm sure, kind of uh, having anxiety attacks just going to the supermarket, <laughs> not knowing if, you know, what that bag of potato chips is going to cost. Yeah, well, hopefully the bag of potato chips is, is their biggest worry. But we, we do have these uh, continued supply chain disruptions, which is, a you know, kind of an economic way of saying we're, we're short of, of goods because of the pandemic and because of the closure of the economy globally. We still have places around the world that haven't fully come back online to deliver not potato chips, but computer chips and other things that go into automobiles and uh, appliances and things like that. And so that that lack of supply is pushing up prices because demand has moved back towards normal. So, you know, typical Econ 101, demand exceeds supply and prices go up. And we're seeing that in just a wide variety of categories of goods and even some services around the country. So the work that hopefully is being done to ease the shortages or, you know, the hopes that it's going to get better, is that why when people ask, you know, Janet Yellen, is this transitory? Are you sure? She goes, yes. And and they still say that it's just a short-term thing. Yeah, and I think, you know, we kind of have to redefine short term. And, and I've been making the case that this is very much like post-war environments uh, that we've seen in the past where coming out of whether it was, and, and to a lesser extent and a certain extent, to, to a certain degree, obviously, but we have lost more people as a result of COVID than we lost in World War II. And the pandemic has lasted about as long as our involvement in World War One, And we depressed demand and redirected resources during the worst of the crisis, uh, the biologic, the health crisis. And then demand came back, but not everybody was able to produce the goods that they were, as was the case in prior war periods, uh, at the same to the same degree that they were before the war. So it's, it's a similar situation. And if you go back and look at World War II, in 1947, prices spiked 20 percent and then settled back in when we started making things for civilian consumption again. And that's, in my mind, that's an analog. But transitory is the wrong word. It's going to last well into 2022. I personally don't know if raising interest rates is the solution. The solution, in my mind, is making more stuff and providing more services so that prices normalize relative to demand. 
You know, when you talk about uh, the length of time it might uh, last, you know, at least with with the consumer goods, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, as the supply gets loosened up, uh, you know, going back to that bag of potato chips, uh, you know, so maybe in in a month or two, it'll it it might may come down a few cents. But the more important thing are the long term things like, for example, rents are going up. In major yep. cities, and and when you have a, a, a you know a, a lease, as you know, you're making a long term commitment, a year or more sometimes. So you're locked in to those higher rates. Yeah, and, and and wages are going up, but not fast enough to compensate for the increase in things like rents and the and the home prices that we're seeing. You know, the median price of a single family home is over four hundred thousand dollars for the first time in history, and again. It's interesting. It's not really the result of stimulus, but the millennials who put off family formation because of the great financial crisis in 2008 are now out looking for houses. And so we're almost 5 million units, 5 million houses short of demand. And we're short of the goods and the workers who would build the houses. So it's a real structural issue um, that has a lot less to do, let's say, with, you know, how much money the government stole out or how long the Fed has kept uh, interest rates at zero. These are real structural issues that don't necessarily get fixed by, you know, kind of the traditional levers of policy that we pull and push. So you got to build more stuff, period, end of story. That's the way this is going to go away, unless they engineer a recession uh, to bring down prices, which is something we fear, and that's why the market sold off today. They're worried that the Fed's going to accelerate their rate hikes and maybe hike more frequently uh, and more dramatically next year than was previously thought. Ron Insana, senior analyst, commentator, CNBC, host of the Market Scoreboard Report. Coming up, students in L.A. have been having a rough time adjusting to school during the pandemic. New survey shows where they want help. And Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger details his experience with former President Trump during the 2020 election in a new book. We will talk with him later on. Speaking of uh, former President Trump, a federal judge rejected his effort to block January 6th investigators from accessing White House records related to his attempt to overturn the 2020 election. The judge said he has no authority to overrule President Biden's decision to waive executive privilege. With us now is Gene Rossi, an attorney and former federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia. Gene, thanks for being with us again. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, uh, first of all, what do you make of the uh, the judge's decision and some of the things that the judge said in reaching his decision? Well, Judge Chutkin, uh, I think, made a proper call, a good call. Uh, you got to understand this privilege, executive privilege, started in 1796 with George Washington when the House was trying to get uh, deliberations regarding the Jade Treaty with Britain. So it was invoked many years ago, but it's a very limited privilege, and I mean limited, in a sense that congressional oversight is very broad, and the public interest in finding out certain facts about certain events is very broad, and the executive privilege is limited to certain situations. The second point is it applies to current presidents and not former. And what the judge ruled is that if I have a jump ball, if I have a decision based on Joe Biden's White House versus a former president's decision on whether these papers should be delivered or disclosed, I'm going with Joe Biden. And that is the proper call. The last thing I want to say is this. Executive privilege is pierced if there's any allegations of criminal activity And there could be allegations of criminal activity 
because in the light most unfavorable to Donald Trump, his actions at that rally was providing aid and comfort to people that allegedly committed insurrection and sedition. So that's another reason why that privilege doesn't apply. The judge didn't focus on that. I am. There's another line in here that is being talked about a lot. Presidents are not kings. Plaintiffs is not president. Uh, and, and what like a knockdown that was. This isn't for every judge, but maybe this one and maybe some are starting to lose a bit of patience when it comes to, to some of this, because we've also seen this tactic employed by, by Mr. Trump before, which is, you know, delay, delay, delay as much as you can. And, and a bunch of people do this in court proceedings. But this team went so far as to say, you know what, we want this judge to look at every single piece of paper and then decide. And that, as they fully knew, could take like years. Oh, we could take total. It, what, what President Trump, former President Trump is trying to do is run out the clock. He knows that there's a very good chance that the House of Representatives is going to go to the Republicans in January of 2023. So he knows this House Select Committee has a half-life of only a few more months because uh, they're not going to issue subpoenas after the Republicans take control, and any outstanding subpoenas will be vitiated and, and removed. So he is trying to run out the clock. This will be appealed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, likely be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. But I got to say this, in blunt terms, that dog won't hunt. When you're the former president, the privilege has very little application, and Joe Biden's White House and his decision carries the weight in the end. Do you think our system, and, and now I'm talking about both our criminal justice system and our political system, is up to the task of, of dealing with a situation where uh, perhaps the former occupant of the Oval Office himself was perhaps a an instigator of a criminal act. Well, if you read a case called Brandon Beek versus Ohio, in, in, in terms of inciting uh, violence in an insurrection or rebellion, uh, Donald Trump's actions on January 6th fall within the exception. Not only was he spatially, you know, uh, literally close to what happened at the Capitol, he asked them to go to that Capitol and fight. And he even promised he'd walk with them. So some cynics say he didn't walk with them because he has bone spurs. I don't go that far, <laughs> but he did put gasoline on the fire. He is the classic incitement to violence that you will ever see. And if you look at the elements of insurrection and sedition, he clearly aided and abetted the individuals who allegedly committed violence at the Capitol, especially the individuals on the west side, where a lot of the police were were, were uh, violently attacked. Yeah, but but Gene, but but the, the 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 question I'm raising is: Is our system capable of handling this? I miss I miss misinterpreted your question. Is, is are we capable of handling this? Yeah, absolutely. Federal courts have prosecuted and tried governors, senators, members of Congress. I don't think it'll be any different than if if Donald Trump is tried and he's the former president. We have a criminal justice system. If you get the right judge, you get a, a fair and impartial jury, which may be hard. Our rules of evidence and the elements of the law will protect him, but it has to, it has to be this. You cannot let an individual at 
any level of government, especially the president, get away with allegedly committing a crime. And I got to say, I am with many other people who worked at the Justice Department, were a little disappointed in Merrick Garland. He's brilliant. He has incredible integrity, but he is a little bit too timid and cautious in looking at Donald Trump's role in the activities of January 6th, and the House Select Committee is basically carrying the water and doing the dirty work for the Department of Justice by gathering evidence. Gene Rossi, attorney, former federal prosecutor, Eastern District of Virginia. Right now, let's get into this new study about COVID. Found hundreds of white-tailed deer are infected with the coronavirus in Iowa. Researchers say the animals probably got it from us. They got it from humans. Could actually mean trouble for all of us someday. Tony Goldberg, veterinarian at the University of Wisconsin, studies the evolution of infectious diseases as they jump between animals and people. Tony, thanks for being with us. So we've done this with dogs and cats and some other zoo animals have gotten COVID, and we assume it's from us. So I guess, number one, not unexpected, but also take us into where this uh, could end up being pretty bad for everybody. Yeah, hi. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's um, yeah, it's it's worrisome. So it's not unprecedented for people to give infections to animals. It's called reverse zoonosis, as opposed to zoonosis, which is when we get infections from animals. Um, what's striking about the new finding is that it looks like SARS coronavirus two, the virus that causes COVID. Uh, has gotten into deer multiple times from people, not just once, but uh, a bunch of times in Iowa, and that it's circulating actively among deer. So they're passing it to each other. And that's kind of bad news because, as we're all aware, viruses have this annoying tendency to evolve. So one of the fears is that what went into deer might not be the same thing as what comes out of deer. And is it a a sort of uh, an axiom that, Whatever comes out of the deer uh, in terms of a mutated virus is more likely to be worse than what went in? No, that's not uh, not really an axiom. In fact, we don't really know what's going to happen. It could go either way. Maybe the virus could evolve into something that's a problem for us. It could be more virulent or maybe evade immunity. But it also could just become a deer virus over time, and maybe it'll fade away into something we don't uh we don't have to worry about too much but you know it's not that that's you know not not i'm not a gambling man so you know putting my money on on red or black in this case is is a little bit scary do we know that it can go both ways even yet i mean if we've given it to the deer and then they're giving it to each other have the deer given it back to us that's the big question the answer is no we do not know that so it's premature to assume that they can but it's also foolish to assume that they can't so we've got to wait to see uh, what's going to happen with follow-up studies that are going to try to assess whether or not deer pose a risk to us. So is there some strategy that is being put into place to try to deal with this? Not yet, because the results are so new. We're going to find we're going to find out soon. I think that um, different folks and different agencies are going to make different recommendations based on this. But it's it's a little bit early, you know. We're kind of in uncharted territory, so I think we don't want to jump the gun. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if recommendations come out, um, maybe not regulations, but recommendations. Um, but right now, we're sort of all waiting to see what happens. So 
you can you know drive the 405 and not see a deer or sit in your your house and not see a deer but there's like a lot of deer in north america so that's also a concern here like the sheer numbers of deer that could be giving deer coronavirus to each other yeah that's the concern so i've been to la quite a few times and you're right i've never seen a deer uh, in the city, but here in Wisconsin, we got a lot of them, and it's popular for people to go hunting. It's popular for deer to come into your yard or or stuff like that. So yeah, the uh, the uh, you know even if deer turn out to be able to transmit the virus to people, the question is, do they actually do that? Is it a real risk in the real world? And we don't really know, but you'd certainly expect that in places with a big deer herd, that risk could be higher. Tony Goldberg, veterinarian, University of Wisconsin. Go to Griffith Park. You can see the deer. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. While students have suffered immeasurably from the COVID-19 pandemic, the detriment to their mental health has been considerable. The Coalition Communities for L.A. Student Success surveyed a group of more than 750. About uh, half said that they were worried about their emotional wellness as well as that of their family and their friends. Marco Hoven Dominguez, recent graduate of Social Justice Humanities Academy in San Fernando, and then current students at Harvard. And also with us will be uh, Norma Norma uh, Rodriguez, who's Director of Education Programs and Policy for United Way of Greater Los Angeles. Marco, let's uh, begin with you. So what was the impact of the pandemic on you from a mental health point of view, do you think? The COVID-19 pandemic definitely impacted my mental health in a way that made me, for one, lose motivation for school, um, the lack of time that I had to spend indoors um, because I was spending my majority of my day um, facing a screen, um, not only impacted my mental health, but also my physical health in that I did experience migraines, um, spending very rare, like rarely time outdoors. And it was just a very lonely time. I felt so isolated that I couldn't see my friends, could not communicate with my teachers. Um, and in that period, I was applying to colleges. Um, so I felt a lack of support when it came to that aspect because I, I couldn't see my teachers or I couldn't um, ask for support in person like I would have if the pandemic was not in uh, the case. Um, and it would made, it made the process really difficult because I couldn't reach out for support in the same way that I I could have in the past. So obviously you made it to Harvard, but congratulations. But how much more difficult do you think it was when you were trying to apply and trying to get all this together, knowing that you had all these, you know, hopes and dreams, but you're also having all of this go around in your daily life? It was just very difficult in the, in the regard that um, I there was just so much to so much that was going on. Um, I had to complete my classes on Zoom as well as my schoolwork. And on top of that, I applied to college and it was just really difficult um, finding the motivation to want to complete my application while having to juggle my responsibilities at home and my schoolwork. Um, I did experience, um, to reiterate, a lack of motivation. Um, and it was just really hard to um, find the motivation to go on. But I knew that I had my goals in mind. And the only way to achieve those goals was if I set my mind to it and um, fought through and fight through that adversity that was really hard to get through um, when it felt when I felt hopeless and kind of lost my sense of direction in the process. Marco, stay with us. Uh, Norma, how typical of a story uh, is this that we're hearing from Marco? Hey, um, you know, it's fairly common. Um, what the survey really eliminated was the multiple layers to stress that students were facing, hence the need for mental health supports, right? 
Um, one of the big findings was that students hold many responsibilities outside of being students, right, that they're juggling. Um, one third of students were balancing extra responsibilities like parental caregiving, raising their siblings, right, babysitting them. Um, and then supplemental earners, right? A lot of students had to take on jobs to support their families as they uh, face job loss or COVID illness through the pandemic. What are some of the things you think could go into place to try and ease some of this? Obviously, hopefully we're coming out of the pandemic, so that's going to be a major contributor. But in terms of having that kind of support at school, what does that look like? Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think Michael can um, hop in as well. But one of the key things that students are asking for is just more mental health supports in the form of more counselors, right, that they can count on at school. Um, one of the other um, findings was that the top need that students had were, was around technology, but not in the traditional sense that we we think about, right, like more devices, all of that, um, which, you know, they, they want better devices, um, you know, better Wi-Fi, but Really, there was some really great apps and tech that were embedded throughout distance learning that students are hoping some of that continues when they're returned in person because it did help them um, juggle multiple responsibilities. It also helped teachers see who was more behind, who needed more help, right, and, and just more equity in a way, right, through the tech. So those are some of the things that we're hoping um, can be woven in as we continue to weather the pandemic and beyond. Marco, do you think that the uh, mental health aspect aspects of the pandemic that impacted you that you just uh, articulated before are, are some of this uh, some of these things going to likely last with you for a long period of time, or do you think you're going to be able to get over it pretty quickly? I think that it's something that will stick for a while, um, especially for me in my case, being uh, three thousand miles away from home, um, having to switch into that transition so abruptly um, without the support from my my high school like officials um, I think that it's really difficult that like the our institutions expect us to transition so smoothly when we don't have that support um, like where we come from um, I feel that um, I don't really have a solid uh, mental health support foundation um, that could have helped me in this transition and it is it, make, it is making it a lot more difficult um, trying to adjust to a new environment um, where everything is so different and there are still so many expectations. Um, and I feel like those expectations are what is causing a lot of students' mental health to deteriorate in that sense um, because there is so much that is expected of them without um, focusing the attention of a student's mental health and well-being first um, because there is so much emphasis on academics rather than the individual student themselves. Marco Hoven Dominguez, a recent graduate of Social Justice Humanities Academy in San Fernando, now at Harvard, and uh, Norma Rodriguez, Director of Education Programs and Policy, United Way of Greater L.A. So how many of us have seen the marvelous Mrs. Maisel? It's about a young married Jewish woman who decides to pursue a career as a stand-up comedian. Now, while the character of Mrs. Maisel is Jewish, the actress who plays her, Rachel Brosnahan, is not. It's a phenomenon that some in Hollywood have dubbed Jewface. Judy Class is senior lecturer of Jewish studies and English at Vanderbilt University. Thanks for being with us. So that example, uh, not the only one. Catherine Hahn was, was going to be Joan Rivers. Uh, Felicity Jones was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Sarah Silverman's been on a couple shows and has brought this up saying, uh, you know, is it the biggest injustice in the world? No, but I'm noticing it. So what's going on? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Me. Um, my thoughts are that it's complicated. 
um, you know, some of the courses I teach are things like Jewish humor, Jewish songwriters, Jews in Hollywood. And there are so many issues that come up with, with appropriation and who gets to write in what voice and who gets to play what roles. Um, and Hollywood going way back, didn't want to cast Jews as Jews. There were some Jewish actors, but they, you know, named them Sylvia Sidney or Ricardo Cortez or something, and they'd let them play anything but Jews. And there weren't many roles that were Jewish. And if, if there were, they, they'd give it to some other actor. And, and it's just a complicated mess of a history is what I'd say going way back. Well, and it also gets complicated because, I mean, we are talking about, about you know, showbiz and acting and, and actors, you know, they, they always play other kinds of roles. I mean, you know, go back to Shakespeare's time, you know, there were no actresses, men played female parts, right? Uh, so where, where, where is the line drawn? Where should it I mean, be? I think it gets changed all the time. When I was growing up, at least in the world of opera, you still had non-Asian women playing Madame Butterfly. Or, you know, someone in blackface playing Othello, if you didn't have someone playing Othello on the stage in blackface, when I was a very little kid, I think people still thought that was fine. Now, especially younger generations probably don't think it's fine. So I, what I sort of tell my students is embrace the ambiguity and complexity of all this stuff, you know, but these issues that are coming up with yellow face and Jew face, those are not terms going back all the way like blackface, but there, it's at least worth thinking about. I think Sarah Silverman is right to sort of put it on people's radar and say we should at least think about this yeah i mean acting is acting so it shouldn't i guess require like a perfect alignment because you're never going to be whoever you're you're trying to be exactly although there's not like a lack of great jewish actors that can be on these shows so if it keeps happening and it happens in, in you know high profile movies and big budget stuff then maybe that's again where she starts asking some more of these questions Right. No, I, I I think it's legit. I think it's something to think about. I think it's something where if someone's really good, we sort of love them in a role and we forgive them. You know, I mentioned to someone else recently that when I watch Angels in America, which Mike Nichols directed, and you've got Al Pacino playing Roy Cohn and Meryl Streep playing Ethel Rosenberg, I'm not going to mess with that casting. But at the same time, going all the way back, I'm aware of a tendency not to cast Jewish people in Jewish roles. And there aren't that many good roles for for Jewish women, you know, certainly not romantic leads. I mean, there are some kind of caricatured roles for Jewish women, whoever gets cast in them. It, sometimes it's offensive when you use a Jewish woman. Sometimes it's offensive when you use someone else in the caricatured roles. But I, I understand that every actor wants to be able to show, look, I've got range. I can play someone other than myself. Writers want to be able to sort of write about things other than just tell their own personal story. Men want to be able to write about women. Women want to be able to write about men. And people want to sort of show both that they've got range and that there are human universals that apply to us all. So I, I just think it's a it's a complicated mess, but it, it's worth talking about this. What, what Sarah Silverman's bringing up. Well, yeah. I, and, and you just sort of touched on it. I mean, it's not just uh, showbiz. I mean, uh, there are some people, writers, right, who, who think that, uh, you know, male writers shouldn't write female characters. And there are some female writers who think, uh, you know, the other way around. I mean, are people being maybe a little too, uh, I'll resurrect a, a word from the 60s, uptight about all this? I mean, it's, it's, I, I think, I think she's right to bring it up for discussion. I, I'm not someone, I, when, when I teach this stuff, I just say embrace the complexity and the, and the ambiguity and the universe is absurd and people are crazy. And so I think if we're really rigid and humorless and doctrinaire and say there's an obvious answer to these things and we're approaching it wrong, but, but I, I think it's worth talking about. Um, representations of Jewish women are, are often unflattering. There aren't, like I said, many, 
roles, a lot of um, people change their name because they wouldn't get cast, you know, and it's not just, you know, if you're, if your name is Bernie Schwartz, you're not going to get the Tony Curtis role. So you change your name. Or if your name's Winona Horowitz, you're not going to get the Winona Ryder roles. And even, you know, up into pretty recent times, that doesn't mean that it's just Jews who change their names. A lot of people go to Hollywood and change their name because they've got a name that doesn't sound good um, or they think their name sounds too ethnic. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, just as people are talking about issues of yellow face, um, and, and roles that are for, for mangas that, that where the character is Asian in the comic book and so the, in, in the manga, and then so who should play them in the movie. I think it's worth talking about this stuff, um, but, but not where everyone, like I said, maintains a sense that the world is complicated and we should all keep our sense of humor. I, I think it's, it's worth a discussion. Yeah, does it fall in line when you know, straight actors play gay characters? Or we also had a, a discussion about you know, when In the Heights came out and people were saying, well, where, where are all the darker skin tones? Because it's, you know, it's mostly you know, lighter people. Right. I mean, all these issues that are coming up, and I think you can, without sort of yelling at Lin-Manuel Miranda, you can raise that issue and say there are a lot of, you know, Afro-Caribbean people who live in Washington Heights. And, you know, but but you, you without sort of ascribing ill will or evil intentions to some some of the casting people, you can sort of say down the, the line, let's be aware of these issues and, and just be constructive about it. Um, you know, I, I with, with, with what I teach, there are so many musicals that were written by by Jewish people about other groups. And then when they bring them back, they sort of, they, they don't know what to do with Porgy and Bess. So they bring in Susan Laurie Parks to sort of change parts of it, or they don't know what to do with Flower Drum Song. So they bring in David Henry Huang to rewrite the book, or they don't know what to do with West Side Story. So they bring in Lin-Manuel Miranda to turn some of the songs into Spanish to sort of kosher it and make it okay. <laughs> because in some ways people like these shows, but in some ways did these Jewish you know, composers and, and lyricists have any business writing these shows, even if they were using these other minority groups as metaphors for themselves, it just gets really tricky. All the questions of, of minstrelsy and appropriation and ventriloquism, it's, it's a mess. It's always a mess. Judy Class, Senior Lecturer, Jewish Studies and uh, English at Vanderbilt University. Judy, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So here's a scenario. You're at the kitchen table with your significant other. The president of the United States calls you, says you need to change the way you're doing your job. You need to change the election results in your state. What do you do? That scenario isn't so far-fetched. It happened to uh, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger after the 2020 election. He even recorded the conversation. They're uh, changing the equipment on the... Uh on the Dominion machines, and, you know, then that's not legal. We did a hand retally, a 100% retally of all the ballots, and compared that to what the machine said, and, and it came up with virtually the same result. Raffensperger's out with a new book about his ordeal with the election and the former president. It's called Integrity Counts. He's with us now. Uh, thank you. Curious. I'm, I'm sure we're not the first show to play you clips back of yourself and the former president. So there's that one. There's the, hey, I only need 11,000 votes. Uh, what goes through your head when you hear that back now? Well, it's an interesting time. Uh, Obviously, President Trump was looking to somehow uh, find an additional votes that would help him win Georgia. But I knew that we had the facts, and the facts haven't changed since that conversation, that President Trump came up short. He said that in the conversation, there was 5,000 dead people that voted. His people in his lawsuit said there was 10,000, but there were actually less than five. That's five. One, two, three, four, five. 
less than five in the state of Georgia. He said that there was underage voters, 66,000, there were zero. He said there was thousands of felons and there was less than 74. All the data points that they had were just wrong. And so we just responded to President Trump respectfully to let him know that the facts were not on his side, that he came up short in the state of Georgia. How much pressure did you feel, though? Well, it uh, was a conversation. It was one hour and 10 minute uh, long conversation. And uh, he made the point uh, and he made it several times in different ways. But everything that he alleged in that phone conversation was not supported by the facts. And so respectfully, myself and my general counsel, Ryan Germany, just responded back with the actual facts, what they were. Was uh, One thing we didn't get into in that phone call, but I think what precipitated the phone call was I had a uh, talking to Neil Cavuto of Fox News earlier that day, and I, I told him that 20,000 Republicans that showed up in the June 2020 primary did not show up at all in the fall, and that Dave, Senator David Perdue got 19,000 more votes in the metropolitan areas of Atlanta and Athens. And then in the Republican congressional areas, they the Republican congressman got 33,000 more votes than President Trump. And I also didn't share with them uh, that day, but 28,000 Georgians skipped the presidential ballot. They didn't vote for anyone. They didn't vote for Joe Biden. They didn't vote for President Trump. They didn't vote for Joe Jorgensen. They just skipped it, but yet they voted down ballot. When you look at those those data points, it really tells you the whole story. The hour and 10 minutes, was he threatening you during this? Is that how you perceived it? And where are we with the whole investigation into that call? Because there is one, and, and you've turned stuff over. Well, I heard what he was saying. I listened to it very clearly. And I heard that it was a threat. And yet it was a hollow threat because we had followed the law, we had followed the Constitution, and we had the facts on our side. But obviously, you know, we understand that there's a lot of uh, positional power that the President of the United States of America has. The Department of Justice works for him, and so does the the, uh, FBI indirectly. And so I didn't know where that was really going to go, but I knew that we did have the facts. And I also knew that the FBI had actually, we had called them in to look at a lot of the allegations that were made. And they said there was nothing there. And they reported that up to the Department of Justice. But there, there was just one of those things that we just call. Right. But, but there's, there, there are two sort of two sort of things uh, that are operate here, I, I would imagine. On the one hand, you've got the, uh, the presidential power that you were just alluding to. But you also have sort of the, I would think, maybe not, the concern of the public. I mean, a lot of people in Georgia, as elsewhere, are supportive and still are of Mr. Trump. Were you concerned about the public? Well, I, that's why I wrote the book, is to set the record straight. All the facts were in there. And including my 10-page letter to Congress, I sent that letter to all of our congressional delegation. I sent it to the Speaker of the House, the Senate Minority Leader, Majority Leader, Minority Leader of the House, Majority Leader. So they all have it. And they've had it now for over a year. And not a single one, not nearly a year, January 6th, but they've had it there for 11 months now. And not a single person has come and said, we dispute any of those facts. So the facts are out there. And I, I wrote that letter to really set the record straight, straight then, I included it in my book, and that's why I wrote the book, Integrity Counts, because integrity does count. It always has, and it always will. I have to find 12,000 votes, and I have them times a lot, and therefore I won the state.
You're listening to KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. And that was former President Trump talking to Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, after the 2020 election, demanding Raffensperger overturn his state's results. We are back now with Mr. Raffensperger talking about his new book recounting his election ordeal. It's called Integrity Counts. A little more from that call. Whether you know it or not, they're laughing at you. And you've taken a state that's a Republican state, and you've made it almost impossible for a Republican to win because of cheating. Did you ever think uh, maybe of just like hanging up on him at that point? No, uh, at the end of the day, I just wanted to make sure that I respect his positional power. I think that's really important. I think that's one issue we have in America right now is that we really don't talk respectfully to each, uh, each other and also people of, you know, uh, have political uh, power. Also, I think we're not seeing Republicans and Democrats really engaging respectfully as much as they used to. And I think that's really important that we have civil discourse. So I think integrity, uh, also uh, character, uh, truthfulness and civil discourse are really important character traits. A lot of people in your party have not spoken respectfully about you. I mean, how do you feel about that, like attacks coming from within and and not just from from President Trump? Because it's maybe different for him if he really thought he won or whatever it is. Uh, he's the guy that was running. But all these other Republicans that just come after you and say all these things. Well, the thing is, I have truth on my side. Everything I said is factual. And so really what they're doing is falling into a big lie. It's the stolen election claims of President Trump of, you know, obviously voter fraud. But we've been facing this from Stacey Abrams, which was that voter uh, fraud claim or a voter suppression claim. Still, it's a stolen election claim. And both of them are really destabilizing our society. When people run their race, if they lose, they just need to lose with honor. It's something we learn in Little League Baseball is that after you lose a game, go ahead and shake their hands and then walk off the field. And then you come back, you try hard and try and win the next game. It's really much like that. We need to really have manners and and understand that elections in, in Georgia, and I believe elections in America are run with, honestly, they're fair. And people, when they win, they win honestly. And when they lose, they've lost honestly also. Did it have a sense for you of of the surreal? I mean, here you are on the telephone with the president of the United States trying to convince you to help him, in effect, overturn a fair election for president of the United States. It, It had to have seemed unreal. Well, every allegation that has been made was never supported on the facts. My job is to follow the law and follow the Constitution. I'm a constitutional officer. I've been voted here by the people of Georgia. And my job is to uphold the Constitution. And so that's what I did. And so there was all these allegations. It was really, I called the rumor whack-a-mole. You know, people said I had a brother named Ron and he worked for the Chinese. No, my brother's not named Ron and no one in my no one in my family works for the Chinese, but that was put out in a tweet from the president. And so it's really tough when you have 80 million followers on Twitter and our office on a good day has 40,000. You just can't compete. So we went out there and we did press conferences. We gently just explained to everyone that's not supported by the facts. Here are the facts. So it was a continuous process for about 60 days. You were saying that, you know, this book is to set everything straight and you have 10 pages of footnotes and everybody can look it up and you're armed with all the data. But does it I mean, yes, it matters because you're saying that here's the data. But if people don't believe it, the evidence has always been there to your point, but people still don't believe it. So what happens with that? 
Well, my dad brought me up to not believe everything I heard. So kick the tires and read my book. And if you don't uh, agree with it, then find something, find how there's something there that's, you know, that in, that you can prove that's, I've said something wrong. I don't think you will, because we know what we have. Do but you... I say all that is that people have just been misled. And at, at the end of the day, when you find out that someone's misled you and, you and you've been played, I think the people really start turning against you know, people that have been making this up. Do you have any concerns that if this were a if this were a repeat in 2024, whether it's with Mr. Trump running again or maybe somebody else? And and I don't know what your plans are, but but suppose you're not secretary of state and suppose we have a similar scenario in your state. Are you worried that the next person occupying your office and the way the rules are being rewritten in many states by Republicans when it comes to voters' rights, that the next time around the outcome might be significantly different? Well, elections in our state and most states are run at the county level. The counties run the elections. Our state, we have all the same equipment, but many states, each county makes the choice on what equipment, equipment they'll use. And I say that is that it really starts at the precinct level. When we have in-person voting, they report their results up to the county, then the county reports that up to the state. So even if you have a secretary of state that lacks integrity, that there will be a lot of fail-safes to protect the people from you know, them doing malfeasance and things like that. Plus, you can rest assured there'll be plenty of lawsuits flying you know, back and forth to make sure that the people's, the people's choice is actually what is going to be certified at the end of the day. But I think it's a whole lot better at the end of the day to have someone that walks the, you know, the, and talks the line of integrity. And that's what I've shown I've done. I made the hard decisions. I'm a conservative Republican, but I have to follow the law. I have to follow the Constitution. And that's what you want, I think, up and down the line of everyone that holds elected office. Take me to January 6th. You're assuming or I'm assuming that you are watching the news and you're thinking, what, knowing that all of this is a backdrop that, that no, there was no fraud here. And yet this is playing out on TV. Well, actually I was down at the Capitol finishing up my letter to Congress. It's my 10 page letter that they've got finished up around 12, 1230, something like that, drove home, turned on the news. And then all of a sudden I saw what was going on, the, the mayhem. And that was shocking. It was uh, something that we haven't seen happen to our Capitol for a long, long period of time. So this is going on. And you just don't know where it's going to go. But I saw the people with the body armor. I saw them with their zip ties. And I'm just really grateful that no one uh, in Congress was actually, what would have happened if they would have got a hold of a congressperson? Because the crowd was really out of control. It was, a, it was really an alarming day, I think. So we don't need to, you know, overstress what happened. But I don't think we need to minimize what happened. And I think that's, we just need to look at it with the brutal, you know, truth and say what exactly did happen and be resolved not to let it happen again. Well, do you think that Mr. Trump and, and those of his uh, closest supporters tried and maybe are still trying to, as some people have, have claimed, in effect, stage a bloodless coup? I don't know what they were planning to do, but I do know that at the end of the day, the system held that you had people with integrity that stood up and did the right thing. And that's those people that did that up in Washington, D.C., they would be really held up in honor and not held up in ridicule or not run out of office. But we are where we are. And uh, I think that, that at the end of the day, in, a long, in the long lens of history, they will be vindicated. 
Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Uh, the book is Integrity Counts. Thanks for talking to us. That's in depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow.